All right, we're going to look at Ezekiel today, tonight, whatever time it is. We're in chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Another vine mess you've gotten us into. Who used to say that? Remember? Laurel and Hardy. We talked about them last week. They've become my favorite rock band. But anyway. Ezekiel 15. Over the years, Pam has gotten me absolutely the coolest gifts imaginable. I don't know how she does it, where she finds them. Among those are my two Arabica coffee plants, uh, better known as Coffea Arabica. They have the little tag, you know, and stuff. Now, you not, might not be aware of this, but coffee isn't a big crop here in the valley. I don't know if you... Growing conditions are not ideal. According to the uh, expert, uh, experts, the best growing conditions for my coffee plants are in a temperature range of 65 to 75 degrees. Rainfall should be plentiful. The weather should switch between heavy rain and sunshine to bring the berries to their full maturity. So we need to grow the plants indoors and really monitor them. It's going to be an uphill battle to get them to flower and produce beans, which, by the way, if they ever do, takes four years. Uh, But we're on it. Plants are meaningful to me, so I'm trying to give them the attention they deserve to keep them healthy so that they will be fruitful. Just replanted them this weekend in larger containers, and I've been taking them outside and misting them regularly because one website said they need... Well, they started to get little brown spots on their leaves. And so I looked it up online. It says that they need humidity, and so you have to take them outside and mist the leaves. And so out there misting them. And then we bring them in at night. And so uh, they're actually doing very well. They're, they're really beautiful plants, uh, and uh, I'm happy to have them. Now, the Lord considers the nation of Israel his vine. Listen to this dialogue. It's from Psalm 80. It's verses 8 through 11. I'll just read it to you. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it. You caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. And so God looks at the exodus of uh, Israel from the nation of Egypt. He says, it's, it, it, what I was doing metaphorically as an illustration, I was bringing my vine out of that place and planting it in this other area where I took care of the soil by displacing the other nations. Now, the trouble was, for all the care God provided for his vine, it failed to yield fruit. Listen to this further description. This is from Isaiah chapter 5. It's verses 1 through 7. The Lord says, Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes... Did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned. Break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. 
I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant vine. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And then Hosea, the prophet, echoed this same sentiment in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 of his book. He said, Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. Now, Ezekiel, in chapter 15, he's going to talk about Israel as God's vine. It's the first of three illustrations over the next three chapters that show Jerusalem and the temple will not be spared judgment in the sixth century. Babylon is coming. And so we begin in verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, now, this is going to be a little bit unusual because God is going to ask Ezekiel a question before delivering the word for his people. And then in verse two, here it comes. He says, son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest. God asked Ezekiel essentially what was a rhetorical question. He asked him what the wood from a grapevine was good for. Now, there are a lot of different trees and they each have their particular uses. I'm not much of a woodworker, so I visited a website to glean the following information. Uh, these folks say mahogany is a good carving wood, but it does split rather easily, so you have to be careful. Red maple, used in woodenware, cabinet work, and furniture. Silver maple is employed a great deal in trim and paneling. And some of you, some of you guys and gals that do work uh, projects, you know that different wood, uh, you know, to me everything's balsa wood. Uh, you know, if I, if I can't glue balsa wood, what, what use is it? Uh, then I just get Pat Mundy to do it for me. But anyway, or somebody that knows what they're doing with real tools. Uh, tools help a lot, I've realized. If you have them, things go real easy. Anyway, you get the idea. So what is the wood from grapevines good for? Well, God answered Ezekiel in verse 3. Uh, is wood taken from it to make any object? Can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Now, notwithstanding that some of you ladies make beautiful grapevine wreaths, in Israel the wood was considered useless. Nothing was made from it that had any real use or value. It wasn't even strong enough, the Lord is saying here, to make a peg which you would hang a kitchen vessel on. And so there was absolutely no use for the wood of, uh, of the grapevine. Verse 4, instead it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? The wood from grapevines could be used as fuel, but it wasn't really good firewood. When God said the fire devours both ends of it and its middle is burned, it seems to be a way of saying that it's a kind of wood that burns very quickly. Uh, you, you'd need an awful lot of it to sustain uh, you know, a barbecue or a fire or something like that. It's not really uh, the kind of wood. When, when we go around looking for firewood during the winter, you, it's not grape wood that you're looking for. You, know, you want some kind of eucalyptus or something like that, not grape wood. 
It was burnt mostly to get rid of it. And as such, it was not an important fuel source. It was kind of like burning your dead Christmas tree, which, by the way, I do not recommend. I did that one time. Not here in Hanford, and it's past the statute of limitations, but I just, oh gosh, who knew? You know, I mean, I blame my dad. He never taught me. You know, we used to, we were one of those families that did that. We threw everything in the fire on Christmas. You just, oh, yeah, there's a fire. Ah, you know, why, why have trash when you can just burn it? You know, and so you just, everything just kind of went in there, all the wrapping paper and the ribbon and other things that weren't supposed to go in there and occasionally the Christmas tree. Uh, and man, do those things burn fast. <laughs> wow. I mean, you're talking about flash fire, you know. Uh, I do not recommend it. It's uh, not not the way to go at all, unless you uh, are mad at your landlord, I guess, or some. But you'll start a fire doing that. Uh, but that's the idea. The, there was really no use for grape wood uh, whatsoever. You could burn it, but it, it didn't. You know, you couldn't cook over it while it was burning, and uh, it wasn't really a good heat source or anything like that. Verse 5, indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? It was useless before it was burned. It was rendered even more useless after it had been burned. And so God is going to great lengths to exaggerate the uselessness of grape wood as a wood. And so now that God and Ezekiel were on the same page about this, the Lord gave him this word, for Israel. He says in verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. To the extent that Israel was only wood, they were good for nothing and they would be burned. Verse 7, And I will set my face against them and they will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Historically, this is describing the end of the reign of Zedekiah. Rather than submitting to Babylon, as Jeremiah was prophesying back in Jerusalem, uh, the Jews were trying to make alliances with Edom, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. All of that would fail. The time for deliverance had passed. God had determined to bring them into captivity for a period of 70 years. Uh, we've, we've been seeing that all the way through, and now God is giving them a simple picture. He's saying, hey, remember that I planted Israel as a vine in this land. And, and uh, then Isaiah had been talking about what God was going to do to his vineyard, and now he tells Ezekiel essentially the same thing. He says, as a, uh, it gives him a little bit of an insight into the, the vineyard. He says, the vineyard that Israel is is useless to me because all they are is a bunch of dead grape wood because there's no fruit. They're not producing any fruit and therefore what good uh, is that? Uh, Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted, verse 8, in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. They had persisted in unfaithfulness. They were sinning committing all manner of idolatry, refusing to repent. In the Hosea passage, it was described as having a divided heart and as bringing forth fruit for themselves rather than for God. Isaiah said God looked for grapes 
and found wild grapes. And so in all of these different images, you're getting the same picture that uh, you know, God was not pleased with them uh, in the sense that they were not fulfilling their purpose. And I really don't care that much if I ever get a coffee bean from my coffee Arabica. It would be fun. I'd get real excited about it. Uh, but I'll be happy if the plants just live, quite honestly. I'm not very good with plants. Who's really good with plants? Anybody? Nobody? If you're, I'm bringing, I'm bringing them to your house for a while. You can house sit my plants. But I'd just be happy if they live and they, they, they don't get, you know blighted like all the plants that I ever touch and stuff. But so I'm you know, I'm 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 honest about that. I'm not trying to start a plantation in my backyard or anything. But I'm not uh, I'm not God and if I am God, I want fruit from my vine. I, I want my vine to bring forth fruit. I want so all the trouble that he talks about in Isaiah that he went to to plant his vineyard and to get it just right. And so I want to bring forth fruit. Apart from bearing spiritual fruit how would Israel compare to the other nations of the world? Well, on most worldly scales of measurement, Israel would be grossly inferior, uh, especially in the 6th century. Uh, she was smaller than the other nations. Uh, she had less natural resources, all of those. On, on any scale, if you compared, say, Babylon to Israel, uh, there would be no comparison. The, the real product that Israel had, the real difference that Israel was to be, was that they were to be the people that walked with God, that bore the fruit of righteousness so that the other nations of the world could see what a relationship with God was like. I think often we forget that Israel was to be evangelical. Uh, we only think in terms of people converting to Judaism and getting into their religion, but, but it was greater than that. God had raised up Israel and said, this is what it means to know me. You can walk in righteousness, have your sins forgiven, uh, be separate from the world and its sin and all. And they were to be a, a light in, that, in the world. Uh, and they failed in that mission. It was to bring forth fruit, spiritual fruit, that God brought a vine out of Egypt, cast nations out of the promised land, and planted Israel in their stead. God intended that the other nations would see the difference it made to know God and to walk with Him. The message to the 6th century Jews in Jerusalem is pretty plain. Uh, it's, it's winding down. Ezekiel is telling them this is coming. In a few chapters, we're going to see the announcement that Jerusalem had fallen uh, in, in, in the final siege of, of Babylon. I want to fast forward to the 1st century. Jesus, in the 1st century, is going around saying, we read this in John 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. Now, Jews would have been familiar in part with that illustration uh, because of all the things that we've been talking about tonight. And sometimes, you know, because it's not our fault we're not Jewish and, and that we don't understand these things. But when Jesus said that, that was like a mind-blowing statement if you were a Jew because Jews were familiar with this illustration. Uh, only in their mind, uh, Israel was the vine. And God, Jehovah, was the vine dresser. Jesus says, actually, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And, and so it just, this is a stunning uh, application of this illustration. He says, I am this true vine. The implication is that in contrast to Israel, which became unfaithful and incurred the judgment of God, 
Jesus was faithful and thus fulfilled Israel's calling to be the vine of God. Now, the vine here is a reference to what you and I would call the trunk. The job of the vine dresser is to tend the branches that abide in the trunk so they produce fruit. In verse 5 of this, we're going to learn that we are those branches, the followers of Jesus. But for a minute, let's look at verse 2 of John 15. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so we're fast forwarding to the first century. And now we're kind of looking at this from our point of view and saying, okay, what does this have to do with us? God wants to bring forth fruit. He wanted Israel to bring forth fruit. They didn't. Uh, So uh, now he's got he sends Jesus and Jesus says, I'm the vine. My followers are the branches. We're going to bring forth fruit. And so the natural question that we have is, well, how does that all really work out? How do I bring forth fruit uh, that is pleasing to God? Uh, And so Jesus says, well, first of all, he goes, I'm going to take some branches away and prune uh, others so that we have more fruit. So what does Jesus really mean when he says a branch that bears no fruit is going to be taken away? Or the better question would be who? uh, Is he talking to believers Or is he talking to non-believers? Well, scholars say that it could be non-believers. Outwardly, they seem like branches, but they have no life in them. So they do not truly abide in the vine. When you follow this through, verse 6 is understood to be describing the final eternal judgment of non-believers. Judas might provide an example of what Jesus is talking about. He had, in the Gospel of John, been dismissed or taken away, we might say. Outwardly, he seemed like a branch. But he never was abiding in the vine. And now he was headed for the eternal fires of hell, described uh, in verse 6 of John 15. Other Bible scholars say that Jesus was only talking to and about believers in these verses. So, will believers forfeit their salvation and perish eternally? It's an important question. Uh, The answer to that is no, because verse 6 can be applied to the believer's loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. The fire and the burning that trouble us so much are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as well. When we stand before the bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, what happens? There is a burning that takes place. Uh, Wood, hay, and stubble is burned away. Uh, Gold, silver, and precious gems remain. And so uh, you, you don't, even if this is talking to believers, it's not saying to them, well, you know, if you don't bear enough fruit, you're going to be burned and lose your salvation. I should mention that other Bible scholars point out that the word take away could also refer to a believer's premature death. There are instances in the New Testament of unfruitful believers dying prematurely as God disciplines them. Uh, And I'd like to suggest that Jesus is speaking to anybody who's not bearing fruit in his or her life. If there's no fruit in your life, you might not be a believer. Regardless your outward attachment to the church or to Christians, you may never have been saved. If so, you'll be taken away, cast out, thrown into the eternal fires of hell and burned unless you repent and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's kind of fascinating sometimes. Um, I think sometimes because we, well, I, I don't know why, but you can be around somebody for a long time and assume that they're a Christian and not really know if they are because you've never really asked somebody to give you their testimony. Uh, and and sometime, I remember years ago, there was a couple that wanted to get married, and I had the hardest time trying to figure out if the if the lady was a Christian, 
because I kept asking her pointed questions and she kept giving me answers that I didn't quite comprehend. In the end, I think we finally got on the same page, but uh, you know, it was really difficult. And, and every now and then I'll talk to somebody who I've known for years and they'll say something and I'll think, huh, that's an odd statement. Uh, you know, uh, they'll just they'll tell me that they converted from Catholicism, for, for example, to Christianity. I'm thinking, oh, that's not exactly what I would say. It doesn't mean that they're not saved, but and then I'm a little bit curious now to find out. Well, when did that happen, and how did that happen, and have you ever been born again? You know, and so uh, it takes me back. I've told the story a million times, but hey, it's all I got. Uh, <laughs> Some of you haven't heard it, I'm sure, but uh, Greg Laurie does this. Anyway, uh, when I was a young, well, I'd been a Christian for a few years and I was working and I went to this uh, meeting, uh, you know, that some businessmen put on uh, and it was an evangelistic meeting and I left my card there and, and one afternoon while I was at my office, these two gentlemen came to visit me uh, and they were Christian men and they were following up on, on my business card and I was all excited, you know, as a little oasis of Christian fellowship in the middle of my day, and so I took him into my office, and we were talking, and, and uh, you know, I was just kind of like you and I would be talking, and then one of them said, well, you know, Gene, have you ever been born again? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been born again, and, you know, I talked about, you know, when I got saved and stuff, and I went on talking about something else, and, and then the other one said something to the effect of, if you died tonight, do you know that you'd go to heaven? I go, yeah, yeah, that's what it means to be born again. And, you know, and, stuff. and they kept on with this. I kept talking, trying to be friends with them, and every few minutes they would say, what are you trusting in for your eternal life? Uh, and I started to get mad. I started to wonder if I was saved at one point because I was so mad at them, you know. And then even after all that, I gave them my entire testimony. I finally got in. I did. It was the only time I really... Uh, you don't ever exaggerate your testimony, you know, but, you know, you get right on the edge of just how bad. I mean, I just wanted to show them how absolutely saved I was. No one could be more saved than me. There was never a person more saved than me. And 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 so I finally thought I had gotten through to them and we had a few more pleasantries. And then they got up and they handed me a tract and they asked me to read that and pray the prayer at the end. Uh, and uh, but you know what? After they were gone. Uh, some time after they were gone and I calmed down, I realized, you know, what an interesting kind of ministry to make sure that a person knows what it means to be saved. And I think it's at least possible that there are Christians in, in every large group uh, who have uh, not asked that question of some of their friends who are also in that group. And it may be that somebody doesn't know what it means to be born again. Uh, that, you know, and... and uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting kind of a thing. Uh, and so, if there's no fruit in your life, uh, it could be that you're not a Christian. And what's wrong with exploring that? I mean, really. Uh, you know, just, if I'm to ask you, are, how do you know that you're saved? Are you, when did you get born again? And those kinds of things. You should be excited to answer those questions. Wouldn't you be excited? Uh, I, you know, so, uh, maybe we need to ask each other. Now, it's also only too possible that you are a Christian, but you're just unfruitful. The passage in 1 Corinthians that we referred to indicates that it's possible to be an unfruitful Christian. You uh, might get to the Bema of Christ and have a lot of your, uh, what you think were works for the Lord, they're just going to burn up because they were done with the wrong motive or from the wrong uh, perspective. The fire is going to reveal it at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, and 
you certainly don't want the Lord to discipline you with a premature death. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't mind. I don't mind being dead. I mind dying. Uh, if I could be dead without dying, that would be great, you know. And that's why I'm looking forward to the rapture. But I don't want to have a premature. I don't want people to wonder. Hmm. I wonder if. Uh, wonder why Gene died. You know, like that. And, you know, maybe God took him home early because of his sin, that kind of a thing. And so it's possible for us to be unfruitful as Christians. Let's say we're believers. Uh, According to Jesus, you can bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. That's what he says in this John 5 passage or 15 passage. Uh, Verse 2 again, I'll read it to you. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you're in Jesus, you're a believer, but not bearing fruit, the Father will first take you away. Uh, The Greek word for take away, interesting, it can mean to lift up or to raise up. It's not necessarily a picture at all of useless branches being removed, not at this point. It's more of a picture of them being refreshed. The vine dresser lifts them up to get more of the sun's light. He puts them in a position to encourage fruit. You and I already know this is precisely how grapes are grown here in the valley. They're grown on trellises, lifting them up off of the ground so that they can yield, uh, have a higher yield. Uh, I love coffee from Hawaii, by the way. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, Hawaii, uh, some of the great coffees in the world. And uh, one of the best comes from uh, Kona Joe. Uh, Kona Joe is a stateside a physician who owns a coffee plantation in Hawaii, uh, which I would if I could. But anyway, uh, and, and he has patented growing coffee on trellises. He holds the patent for that. No one else ever thought to do it. But he had the idea that, hey, that's how we grow grapes and they become larger and lusher and more, you know, flavorful. And he's found that the same thing is true of coffee. It, it allows it, this lifting up, this raising up, allows it to get more airflow, more sunshine, more of all the kinds of good things that it needs in order to have a greater yield. And so one of the things I think is really being said in this passage in John is that the Father wants to lift you up more into the light of His Son, Jesus Christ. He'll, he works with us quite, uh, with quite a lot of effort to get us into a place of bearing fruit. If you are bearing the fruit, the Father then prunes you so that you're bearing even more fruit. Now, this word prune, it can mean to cut, but it can also mean to cleanse. It's not always the application of pruning shears, but also the cleaning off of the branch with pure water. And uh, I've encountered some plants, maybe you have too. I'm not, as as you understand, I'm not big on plants, but... There are some plants that if you have certain problems, they recommend that you wash the leaves, that you get the the dust, for example, off the leaves and keep the leaves clean. And that's what this is talking about. Vine dressers still use this technique as a gentle way to encourage fruit. Uh, And I know this is the right track because in verse 3, Jesus says, you are already what? Clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So he's talking about lifting you up, cleaning you, exposing you to the light of the sun, exposing you to the washing of the water of the Word of God. And so we might say that the Father isn't lopping you off, He's lifting you up, He isn't cutting you, He's cleansing you. He exposes you to the Son of God through the Word of God to produce fruit and more fruit in your life. And then He says, verse 4, 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without, uh, without me, you can do nothing. Illustration is very simple. The branch coming out of that trunk, totally dependent upon the vine to live and to produce fruit. Abide in Jesus and you will produce fruit, more fruit and much fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Again, believers and unbelievers, whoever is uh, not bearing fruit, uh, it's just that we don't necessarily rush to the conclusion that this burning is the burning of hellfire. It can just be the burning of our lack of reward. And so, having gone through this, here's, here's the situation. Israel, all that God, he, he, in a sense, created them as a nation. Uh, and, and if somebody say, well, why did you do that? And he goes, well, let me give you an illustration. They're like my vine. I took them out of Egypt. I replanted them in Canaan so that they would bear fruit. Wonderful, luscious fruit. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of a relationship with God. Uh, something desirable that people would look at and desire. Over time, because of their divided heart, because they wanted fruit for themselves and not for me, because they wanted to bring forth fruit for me, but also live in the world, and they turned out to be wild grapes. He says, after a while, there wasn't really any fruit, no fruit of righteousness. Uh, Whatever fruit they thought they had was a pseudo-fruit, a false fruit, and so there really nothing left there except uh, the wood. And, and the wood is, is, is no good. It, it, it only acts as a conduit to bring forth the fruit that I desire. And so we, and we see Jesus make application of this to himself and to his disciples. And so you and I think, well, we want to bear fruit. Uh, that's, that's, that's what, what, what makes me any different than the next guy except that I bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness, because I am planted with Jesus in a relationship with Him. Uh, you know, uh, that's the difference. That's what people... God says that's what they need to taste and see and understand, that there is there's something that is produced through your life that cannot be produced any other way. It's not that you're more moral than the next guy. You will be. It's not that you're kinder or gentler. It's not that you have more of something than they have. It's that you have something that cannot be produced humanly at all. It, it really is totally dependent upon God. It's, so, it's in a whole other dimension. It's not just that you're better. And I think sometimes as a Christian, I think, well, I'm, I'm, you know, God makes me better than other people because uh, you know, of my values and all of these things. And you know, from one point of view, that's true. But I think the spiritual thing here that God is saying is, no, you're, you're, people should look at you and think that's impossible. It's not possible for a person to bear that fruit, to have that love, that kindness, that joy, that patience, that long-suffering, that whatever it is. The kind of fruit that I see in that person's life is, is impossible to, to have by personal discipline or, or by... There has to be an abiding in something that is producing that the same way that a vine just sits there, you know, a branch in the vine, the vine in the ground, sucking up nutrients and all of a sudden, wow, there's fruit. How does that happen really? You know, I mean, what an amazing thing as we're coming into spring 
and we have these seasons every year and, and this fruit bearing. And, so, uh, and, and then the Lord comes along and He says, so I am the vine dresser. And what I want to do is expose you to the, the light of my Son and cleanse you with the washing of water by the Word. That's kind of our part is to abide and the abiding means to look at Jesus uh, because God says now, this is what it means to be human. If you want to know what it means to be human and to, to live this way, I've shown you in Jesus Christ. And it, doesn't Jesus on every page, doesn't He just blow your mind? Everything He thinks, everything He says. You know, and what we have to realize is, yes, He's the Son of God, He's the second person of the Godhead eternally, but when Jesus was on the earth, though He was fully God, He, he did not think it robbery to be equal with God. And he says, I am going to temporarily lay aside the prerogatives of deity and live as a Spirit-filled man. And that's why he's out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And the devil says, do this. You're God. Turn, water, turn rocks into bread. You can do that. You're God. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm a man uh, filled with the Spirit of God. I'm waiting for my Father to tell me what to do. If he's going to tell me to do that, I'll do it. But what he's telling me is that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, and it's really instructive to look at Jesus as a Spirit-filled man. He didn't quit being God. He never did that. There, there's a heretical teaching that Jesus was God, became a man, then became God again. No, He's always the God-man once He's incarnate. But He says, I am not going to act like God. I'm not going to use my, my God property. His miracles, God told Him to do. That God told Him to do those things. His Father, He didn't exercise those in His own authority. And so, it's, and so God says, no, there's Jesus, that's, that's the sun, as it were, the light, and the cleansing of the water of the Word of God as we're out in the world, picking up these defilements, uh, making it more difficult to bear fruit. He's lifting us up. Uh, he's washing us off. Uh, bear fruit. And uh, wherever He's planted us. Amen? Amen.